That is a clean floor. Thank you, Sherry. And thank you, kids. Stepping on Legos without shoes particularly is a parent's worst nightmare. I'm glad there aren't any up here. We are at the very, very, very final sermon on our Joshua series now, and we're going to look at Joshua 24, verses 29 through 33. And I invite you to find that, however you're reading scripture these days, uh, physically in a Bible, electronically on your phone. And as you're finding that, uh, let's just think through the past. This has been since April. We've been looking at Joshua. It's been a lot of fun for me. I hope it has been for you. And when we began, we established that as our mission as a church, we are disciples who make disciples. That's our mission. That's what we do as God's people together. That's a main component of why we gather and do ministry together and worship. And what we said was that God, that's our mission, but the timing of what happens in the world around us can affect how we do that mission. Uh, It can affect it greatly or not so greatly at times. Sometimes it's really easy to do it. Sometimes there are cultural forces that make it hard. Sometimes, like now, we're still in a time of uncertainty uh, as we kind of still continue to come out of this COVID period because it's just over a, a year ago that we were locked down and coming back into things. We've been wearing masks or not wearing masks or all kinds of different things for a a long time now. And here's the thing. God leads no matter what's going on around us. And God leads particularly in messy times when it's unclear what's going on. God is the one who brings order out of that chaos and leads us into that order. He walks with us, but more importantly, God goes before us in the midst of those messes and that chaos. And then he calls us faithfully to follow. And as we saw, the call that Joshua needed, the call that the people needed constantly was be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. I've already gone before you. I've set the table. I've prepared things. Victory is at hand if you'll just be strong and courageous and follow. That's where we've been. And the goal has been to use the book of Joshua to consider as disciples of Christ, what does it mean then? to walk forward as followers of Jesus when the road seems a little bit different than it did before, when it seems like things aren't as clear, when we have to be courageous as disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been doing. And you can see now by this point in Joshua, they've been brought into the land. They've crossed the river on dry ground. God's given them victory over the people in the land. The people in the land committed evil in the sight of the Lord, and God said, I'm going to vomit them out of the land. And you're going to do it, Israel. And then I'm going to give you this land as the promise fulfilled. And you're going to live in this land and settle this land and be able to thrive in this land if you're obedient to me. And that's where we find them at this point. But the trick is, is this just going to be a one generation kind of thing? Is this it? One and done. They're brought into the land. That's it. How is the next generation going to take on what God has done and the order that God has brought to what was otherwise chaotic before? You see, as Jesus followers, it turns out we inherit that same legacy. The people of Israel were not called to simply inhabit the land. They were called to inhabit the land so that they could call the rest of the world to God, a nation of priests. If we follow Jesus Christ, we're in that same inheritance It expanded with Jesus in a remarkable way that we too are to be people who call others to kingdom life in Jesus Christ, disciples who make disciples. But the question always before us is, are we equipping future disciples to follow Jesus? 
Because that's the position that they're, they're left with at the end of Joshua. What's the next generation going to do with all that's been done so far? Now, let's look at our text. Because at first sight, you might say, well, how did you get to that conclusion, Evan, that this is the way to go? So, Joshua 24, 29 through 33. It says, After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, and the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Serah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. And Eleazar, son of Aaron, died and was buried at Gibeah, which had been allotted to his son Phinehas in the hill country of Ephraim. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if we look at these three people, first of all, just to kind of get our bearings, we have Joseph, we have Joshua, we have Eleazar. We're told all about their deaths or the reburial of Joseph particularly. With Joseph, you can see that each of these three names point to something else that God was doing and to God's faithfulness. Joseph, they had taken his bones out of Egypt. They had buried them at Shechem. By the way, and just keep this in mind, we talked about Shechem a number of weeks ago. What else they buried at Shechem were the old gods. They said, we're going to follow God. And Jacob's sons buried their old gods there. We'll also find out they might not have buried them deep enough. We'll get to that. Put a pin in it. Joseph is reburied there in the land of promise. And what does he mark? He marks the reason that they were in Egypt in the first place. Now, he didn't bring them into slavery, but that's how they ended up in Egypt. It ended up enslaved in this place for generation upon generation, for centuries, in fact. And now, bringing his bones back kind of marks the end of the story, in a sense, that the promise is fulfilled to bring them back to the land where they came from. You can see then Joshua by talking about him, of course, it closes out the book, but it also shows the conclusion of the Exodus. It shows the end of this saga of God bringing them out of the land and putting them in the land of promise. And it's Joshua who was the one who was given that task to lead them to that victory and to conquering the land. And then Eleazar, we really didn't cover him in this, but if you read the parts of Joshua we didn't really preach on, it's all about settling the land. Eleazar, the high priest, is really highly involved in that part of, of the story in settling the land. So if Joshua is the one who brings victory through the, the conquering of the land, it's Eleazar who settles it so they can thrive. It's Eleazar who says, these are the allotted portions that God's given to each of the tribes of Israel. Now we're going to settle into these portions and live into the promise God has given us. That's what is happening there. Obviously, you can see there's a connection with the Exodus as well, because Eleazar is Aaron's brother. God's faithfulness is demonstrated, though, in these lives and in what they mark. God's faithfulness was demonstrated in his covenant promise with Abraham in the beginning and then bringing them to the promised land. They were out of the land for a while, and then the covenant faithfulness is, is shown again in rescuing them through the exodus, bringing them to the land, allowing them to settle the land, and then to begin to thrive in the land. God is faithful. Is anybody in the room excited about that this morning? God is faithful, and we see that there. And the question becomes, and it's a curious question, what legacy does Joshua leave then for those who follow? It's, it's a little bit uh, hard to figure out in some ways, but the call that we get in Joshua 24 uh, tells us that they're on shaky ground if they're not careful with the next generation. 
You can actually see in the book of Joshua, we didn't cover all these, but there are seven monuments that are set up to God's faithfulness throughout the book. Uh, from the very beginning when they crossed the uh, Jordan River, they set up a monument, but there's other monuments that come along. So they have physical markers in the land to remember God's faithfulness to them. All throughout the land, they have those. They, of course, have carryover of God's faithfulness in the Passover, which they're now celebrating in the land, which they wouldn't have been, if we read the text correctly, uh, before in the wilderness. They also have circumcision for the males that they're, they're marking the sign of the covenant again. And then the land itself is a mark of God's faithfulness. They're living God's faithfulness physically on the land. It's all around them. Now, I, I was inspired last week by Ron. He likes audience participation when he preaches. So uh, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but uh, if we're talking about those who come after us, uh, does anybody remember uh, the slogan for Pepsi in about the late 80s, early 90s? It was about a choice. Anybody want to call one out? Or any Pepsi slogan? Anybody got one? I know, it's a real narrow slice of, of trivia. You, you can Google it because it's fun to look at the old ads. Pepsi is the choice of a new generation. Remember that? Anybody? Yes. Go Google it because it's fun to, to walk down memory lane a little bit of that. Also featured in Wayne's World for those of you who really want to take a deep dive in that. What choice did they give the new generation? What legacy did they leave behind? What did the kids do with what was there? We should recognize that there's a phrase that gets used sometimes in church circles that's true, that is God has no grandchildren, right? You can't really inherit the faith. If you grew up in the church, you still had to choose Jesus. And if your kids are growing up in the church, they still have to choose Jesus. They don't just get it by default by being here in the doors of the church. They don't just get it because they're around people who follow Jesus. God has no grandchildren. Here's another piece of trivia. This one might be easier for a couple of you. In 2016, uh, you know, each year our, our denomination has an annual meeting. We call it Gather. Now, 2016, we showed on this screen a welcome and uh, come introduction, come to Gather 2016. Does anybody remember the uh, unexpected face that invited you to Gather 2016? If you were here. Oh, I'm stumping you this morning. Okay, again, these are deep dives. Alice Cooper, the shock rocker, Alice Cooper. Anybody, does anybody jog your memory there if you were here? It's been a few years. Why was Alice Cooper on there? Well, he left the faith after being raised in the faith and notoriously then did a lot of crazy stuff in the rock world and made his living. He came to Jesus later in life, though, again, and now runs a, a ministry out of one of our covenant churches in the Phoenix area where, where his home is. That's why he did it. Alice Cooper didn't come to faith because he just lived in the church and didn't benefit from that faith simply because he had grown up in the church, he left. He had to choose for himself, just like we have to choose for ourselves who we will follow, whom we will serve. Now, here's the problem. So if you looked at Joshua 24, verses 31, verse 31, you're going to see, if you just go two pages beyond or two thumb clicks beyond, depending on how you're reading this morning, in Judges chapter 2, starting at verse 8, almost the same verse, but then it's followed by what happened with the next generation. So Judges 2, starting at verse 8, it says, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Harris, 
which is the same place, it's just a slightly different name for it, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. What, you, what we can look at is sort of three generations now. There's the, we'll call them the Exodus generation, or the people who God delivered out of Egypt. They ended up wandering in the wilderness because of their own disobedience to God. They gave birth to what we'll call the wilderness generation, those who were born in the wilderness and who ended up going into the land and taking the land under Joshua's leadership. And now you have what amounts to being the promised land generation, the ones who were born in the promised land who now are the the legacy after Joshua. The wilderness generation, surprisingly, was actually set up for failure by the previous, the Exodus generation. We read about this weeks ago because they were uncircumcised, their children were, which meant they couldn't actually participate in the Passover. So that's crazy that what God had given them in deliverance from Egypt, they had witnessed the 10 plagues, even lived some of them firsthand. They had crossed the Red Sea, and yet they didn't even allow their kids to celebrate the Passover meal. The thing that they're told when you celebrate this, your kids are going to ask, give them an explanation so they know God's goodness. They didn't do that. And yet in spite of that, the wilderness generation still was faithful. They had to figure it out. They had to get consecrated. They had to cross. They had some problems, but they lived under Joshua's leadership, and they still entered the land and were able to at least make that decision and choose today whom they would follow. They're challenged at the very end. Again, choose today whom you follow. I'm rather surprised these days that um, I run into this more often than I used to, but it's always been there. It's just more prominent running into parents who say, I'm going to let my kids decide what religion they want to follow, and I'm not going to influence them in any way, which is silly. We always influence our kids in every way possible, right? I mean, right now, all the kids in the room, even if they don't look like it, are observing how we act and operate in church. We're teaching them how to worship in the future. Kids, watch us. Kids, figure it out. We can say one thing, but it's what we do that they actually see, and they're really good at figuring out what we believe based on that. Has anybody ever witnessed that with kids? We were that way as kids too. That's how we decode the world and figure it out. People say this. Now, they don't have that same attitude about math, right? I'm going to let my kids decide what kind of math they want to use. I mean, no, we're going to teach them math, right? They don't do that with what language they're going to use typically, right? If you're a home that speaks English in this country, typically, uh, or Spanish, maybe, whatever. You're, you're going to say, you know what? You know, we're, we're going to let them figure out if they want to speak German. In our, that's, not, that's not how we do it. Yet people do that with religion, and typically that reveals more about their worldview than about what actually is true. The wilderness kids had to choose God. By the way, when we do that to kids, it just creates confusion. It doesn't create clarity for them. I've watched it over and over again when people say, I want to let my kid choose their own thing. They, the kids get confused. They're lost. They're looking for clues. The wilderness kids had to choose God in spite of a generation that didn't set them up to participate. 
And then the children of promise that come after them, the question is, are they set up for success or failure by this wilderness generation who now is settled in the land? And we can actually see that there are some problems looming if we look carefully at the text. We don't even have to look that carefully. We go back to Joshua 24. We go to verses 14 and 15. We can see that there's a problem in their midst. It says, now fear the Lord. This is Joshua speaking to the people. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your, your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Do you want to preach this part, Wesley? Do you want to wave to everybody? Let's go back down. Okay. Cool. I have the toys after the service. I'm not going to hand them out now. Okay, when we look at that, do you see the problem that's looming? A couple things. One, they've been through all this faithfulness with God, and yet still at the end, I don't think it's rhetorical, choose today whom you will serve. They're challenged with that. But also, do you see the other looming problem? Put away the gods you have from beyond the Euphrates, from Egypt, and from the Amorites. Why do they have gods from beyond the Euphrates, from Egypt, and from the Amorites in their midst? If God has been faithful and brought them into the land and ejected the people in the land because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord, why do they still have that stuff in their midst? If you look at this, what we can recognize, the God beyond, God's beyond the Euphrates, what's that referring to? Either, I mean, beyond the Euphrates is when God made a covenant with Abraham and called him. That's what that means in Ur, in Babylon. So either they ran into them again or they've been carrying with them the whole time the gods from before the covenant and still have some allegiance to those gods and to the ideas of those gods. And we can see that this happens sometimes when people sort of uncritically take on uh, sort of pre-Christian beliefs. If somebody came to faith later in life, sometimes they can still hold on to other beliefs. Or even if you've grown up in the church, you can still hold on to cultural beliefs that are out there, but that's later on in there. But people will sometimes uh, try and piece together two religions to try and make things work. I've run into that recently. Um, or try and piece together their own religious system in some way, kind of pulling in Jesus a little bit, but kind of pulling in some other convenient things out of Buddhism and other things like that that sound real good and Eastern religions, that sort of thing, or even the force or whatever you're bringing in. Karma sometimes creeps into there. I see this with, within the Christian world sometimes that people try and pull in karma, which one... We do it wrong, first of all, and secondly, it's not a biblical worldview. Um, or even sometimes we, we come in, but we still have this kind of belief that Jesus is a way, a truth, and a life, and so that, you know, that he's salvation for us, but maybe there's salvation for other people somewhere else. It's worshiping the gods across the Euphrates is what that's doing, if we believe that. Those, those are not things that are biblical, and those are something that sometimes we pull into the faith with us. And even as just next to this, I just think it's worth pointing out, some of us that have grown up in the church can easily take on the faith and believe things that are true, but we've never critically thought them through. So we believe them and they're true, 
but we actually haven't let it grow up in us. That is to say, we've grown up with the faith, but the faith hasn't grown in us. And so we need to be critical about what we believe in the positive sense. That is, understanding it, understanding why we believe that, because that's going to enliven our faith in Jesus Christ and make it richer when we do. Second thing is the gods from Egypt. So they spent nearly 400 years in Egypt in slavery. You figure that the culture had some effect on them during that time almost impossible for it not to. And in the same way, if we're going to put away the gods of Egypt that we would worship, that is what cultural influences have compromised us as believers in Jesus Christ. That's the question we're asking. And we're all compromised, myself included, in some way. We've taken in cultural ideas and brought them in, even though we're trying to construct a biblical worldview, and so we don't have a fully, holy biblical worldview because we always are taking in stuff around us, and again, uncritically sometimes without realizing it. It's the water we swim in. There was a survey that just came out last year from Ligonier Ministries that said that 30% of evangelicals believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now, I'm inclined to believe that they're pretty accurate in this. 30% of evangelicals believe Jesus was a good teacher, but was not actually God. Well, that kind of throws everything into doubt then, doesn't it, if that's what you believe? Jesus can't actually enact salvation for us at that point. We've been culturally compromised sometimes if the gods of Egypt still remain in our midst. And then finally, the gods of the Amorites, which really isn't that much different from the gods of the Egypt, except we would say this, it's when we try and get trendy or innovate the gospel to make it culturally fit better uh, than it does. And we don't need to be in the business of innovating culture. And uh, you have an untrendy pastor, I'll just say this. I bought the clothes I bought because they were cheap, not because they were trendy. And my wife got these shoes for a dollar or free. I can't remember, both of which are my favorite prices. So it worked out and they were used. But we don't need to innovate the gospel. We don't need to get trendy with the gospel. The gospel is compelling enough on its own. Now, we need to make sure that we present it in relevant fashion, right? People deal with different things and will receive different, uh, different presentations of the gospel better, but that's not changing the gospel. And sometimes there are convenient moments where culture and what culture is talking about and what we're talking about in the church do line up. You know, in the covenant, we affirm men, women in ministry at all levels of ministry, ordination on down, and believe that we were biblically faithful in doing that. It did coincide with where culture was going at that point. Okay, that's fine, but we believe we're biblically faithful in that, not doing it because of culture. Even racial righteousness in our conversations about that, we believe that we're being biblically faithful in talking about that rather than simply being culturally uh, aware in a sense, although those two could coincide. But sometimes we just compromise right? And we can go into the big rabbit hole of sexual ethics, and we've compromised there in many ways. We need to make sure we're not worshiping the gods of the Amorites, the Egyptians, and the gods from across the Euphrates, holding on to things from the past uncritically that may or may not be of the faith, holding on to things where we're culturally compromised, and trying to get overly trendy and innovate the gospel to fit when that's not what we're called to do, nor what the gospel is meant for. What we need to do is make sure that we are leaving a courageous legacy for the next generation. And I'm going to pull out two New Testament passages just to talk about a couple things about that because it starts in you and me, and we need to make sure that we are living as a community that way and that we individually bring that in as well. So Galatians 6.1, it'll come up on the screen. 
Paul writes, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Spiritual decline is gradual, but it is also gravitational. That is to say, it is easy to pull away from God's will and God's purposes. We need moments like what Joshua says, choose today whom you will serve. We need to be challenged with that regularly because sometimes we can slip away and not even realize it. And it's gradual, but it's also gravitational in in the sense that if we uh, live as a people who instead of calling others back, get dragged down by the sin of others, then we have problems. It becomes a bigger problem among us. And we have to recognize that, that sometimes that what Paul's talking about is the difference here between true community and false community. False community is the kind where they say, okay, well, you're slipping away. Rather than calling that out, I'm just going to kind of let it go. And what Paul is saying is, guess what? That's going to affect you too. You're in greater danger of slipping away at that point. And among the people, you're in danger of fostering an environment where that is possible because we have a desire to be liked sometimes and a desire to not offend among God's people. And so we don't call people back to right when we need to call them back to right. Paul says, watch out. That's a problem. You're living false community, not true community. Now, that doesn't mean we go around offending one another, right? It doesn't mean that we go around saying, being a a giant I don't know, judgmental person to everybody that comes in, but it does mean that among God's people, we are supposed to call each other to account because I will tell you this, on the day of judgment, I don't want to find out then how far away I'm from Jesus. I want my fellow brothers and sisters to say, come back, come back. Paul says, watch out. We don't live in false community. We live in true community. Jesus sometimes offended, by the way. That's not our call, but when he spoke the truth, sometimes people didn't like it. That's going to happen in the body of believers if we live true community. But we're living the truth at that point. We have to do it in love. Spiritual decline, I bring that up because spiritual decline is gradual. It can be gravitational, but then it becomes generational. That's the problem. That's the problem that, that the Exodus generation, somehow the wilderness generation didn't fall away. But guess what? Their kids did. Because read Judges. Wow, did they fall away. Somehow they didn't set them up right. They didn't bury those gods from the past. And we can pass that on if we're not careful. We can pass on the faith rightly lived or we can pass on the faith wrongly lived. And I think we know which one we want to do. How do we pass on this faith to the next generation faithfully? The other thing to point out, the other passage I wanted to bring in was Romans 12.2. Romans 12.2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You and I need a transformed mind if we're going to call others to transformation in Christ. Now, it's the Spirit who actually does the work, but we're called to call. We're called to call people into that. And if we're going to have a transformed mind, we need to actually ask the question on a regular basis, do I have a biblical worldview? Are my decisions made based on what this says, or based on what I've seen on the little screen and the big screen, and what I've heard around me, and what I've read around me, and what I've heard in conversation from other people who may not have a biblical worldview that I've just taken in uncritically, right? We are a people who are committed to devotional reading of this book, 
to study of this book, and most importantly, to doing this reading together, because that's how we're challenged to grow in Christ and develop a biblical worldview. We're called to be savvy shoppers with cultural ideas around us and do the homework to recognize, is this biblical or is this not biblical? My points are getting more dramatic here. We also need to be people who are aware of good theology and at least somewhat studied on it so that we can pass it on. This has been a big issue within the evangelical world that we haven't done a tremendous job of that overall. We need to be wide-eyed about the stakes of what could happen. Sometimes we're astounded that kids go off to college and the first time somebody says, well, how can there be a, a evil in the world if there's a good God? Or, you know what, there's a contradiction in this part of John compared to this part of Mark, and they just their faith crumbles. How can we prepare them so that they actually are aware of how to address those issues which aren't actually that hard to address? How can we train them in what is right and what is true and be aware of those stakes? We, as the people of God, need to prepare them adequately, and we need to be knowledgeable in order to do that and engaged in their lives. Third thing I would point out is that Obvious barriers to growth need to be removed if we're going to allow the next generation to grow. You can see way back in the beginning of Joshua, as we said, the next generation was hampered from the possibility of even participating in the life of the people because the males weren't circumcised, so they couldn't participate in the Passover. We always have to be in the business of asking ourselves as God's people, where have we done the same thing? Where have we hampered and hamstrung the next generation of being able to move forward? You can see even in our own history as a denomination, Back in the 1920s, we, we, in the 1885, were a bunch of Swedish immigrants who formed a denomination. We're completely way beyond that at this point. Uh, we're, we're quite diverse, which is great to see. But in the 1920s, they had to make a crucial decision that would actually lead to that or not lead to that, which was all the people who founded the denomination spoke Swedish. That was their heart language, and their kids didn't. Their kids thought in English. Their kids dreamed in English. Their kids spoke in English. Their kids didn't resonate with the Swedish service anymore and with the Swedish training. And as much as it it was so hard for the parents to say, they said, if we don't change to English, we're going to lose these kids. That was a hard decision. And they made the switch. Aren't you thankful? They made the switch. Everybody who speaks English in this room instead of Swedish. Aren't you thankful, those of you that are the kids and grandkids and great-grandkids of those people and inherit that faith as well, that were here today because they made the tough decision. They didn't allow that barrier to growth stay. They said, we, we see something bigger that God is doing here. Hard as it is, we'll make that decision. Finally, we need to demonstrate what a renewed mind looks like among God's people. I will be very clear. I know that the meeting coming up, maybe you're thinking about that entirely and exclusively and haven't listened to most of what I said. I can understand that. There some interesting choices ahead of us in the meeting ahead. And this sermon is based on what we're reading in Scripture, not based on the meeting, but it's relevant to what's about to happen in the meeting. That is to say, how we conduct ourselves in the meeting to make a mission decision matters. How we conduct ourselves in that meeting matters. What we are going to make may seem big, may seem small, depending on who you are, but we make the decision based on the mission going forward not our personal preferences. We make the decision based on the mission going forward so that regardless of what the outcome is, so that at the end of today's meeting, whatever the outcome is, 
We can say what they said in Acts 15, this decision seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Because the way we make decision tells the next generation, not just the decision itself, tells the next generation who we are as the people of God. Are we the people who can have tough conversations in love? Who can have tough conversations around basing it on God's mission? Or are we going to choose other methods and means? I'm going to invite the band forward. And we're going to have a short time of prayer. Mixed in with our final song. It's actually not geared around. It's, it's based in response to this text. That is to give us a time of confession. A time to actually call out the names and titles of God and attributes of God. A lot of us are introverts. Call them out anyways, out loud. Speak the names of God. There's power in speaking God's name. And then we will, you will be called to seek the Lord as well. And then we'll go. You can take kids downstairs if you need to, get some coffee, and we'll have our meeting. So let's, let's begin with some prayer. You can remain seated for this part of it, and we'll invite you to stand partway through. Let's, let's go to prayer. As we go to prayer, close your eyes, put your hands out, take any posture of prayer. Lord, we take time to confess to you right now where we have worshipped things other than you, where we have broken the first three commandments and made graven images, where we have worshipped other gods, where we have taken your great name in vain and bowed down to things unworthy of worship. Lord, we lay those before you now in this time of silence.